My guest today on the program, well, he wasn't in any of my favorite bands. But if it wasn't for him, my favorite bands wouldn't have been my favorite bands because I probably wouldn't have known they were ever bands in the first place. Are you intrigued? Good. Sit tight and you'll find out who I'm chatting with today. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. like me and you grew up in the 80s, you'll recognize that music as the clarion call of cool. It's the theme song to a program that ran on MTV from 83 to 87 called IRS's The Cutting Edge. Hosted by the Flesh Tones' Peter Zaremba, the show was like a video magazine featuring snippets of interviews and live performances of, well, of cutting-edge artists doing their thing. Who was on the show? Try this. Jonathan Richmond, The Smiths, X, The Fall, Hoodoo Gurus, Concrete Blonde, and Ladysmith Black Mombazo. I even feel like I saw an episode where Iggy Pop was being interviewed in a tree, but I don't know. I may have made that up. I got to check on that and see if it really happened. What did happen, and this I can confirm, is that one show had R.E.M. playing an acoustic version of Don't Go Back to Rockville in a living room, and that, if you haven't seen it, you got to see it immediately. Immediately after this show, that is. Oh, hang on a second. My intern is telling me something. Yes, it did happen. All right. Uh, The Iggy Pop in a tree thing has now been confirmed. That really did happen. All right. Back to the show. I realize I still haven't told you who my guest is. So let's get to that. IRS's The Cutting Edge was the video extension of the record label IRS Records, which was founded by my guest today on the program, Miles Copeland. Let me tell you a little bit about Miles Copeland. Well, a little bit about Miles Copeland is impossible because there's so much to tell. His new autobiography, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, details his extraordinary career as the manager of the police and Sting and as the founder of the record company that launched the careers of R.E.M., Fine Young Cannibals, The Go-Go's, The Bangles, Wall of Voodoo, and The Cramps. Miles's career has amounted to a massive CV of pure riches, and when you read his book, you'll see he's lived an astonishing life in and out of the music business. Having a father who founded the CIA, being raised in the Middle East, having a brother who played drums for the biggest band in the world, and the list just goes on and on and on. Two Steps Forward, One Step Back is a riveting tale of business savvy, intuitive cultural understanding, Strange characters, great decisions, bad decisions, and a lot of triumphs and disasters in between. Spoiler alert, it all works out. 
Copeland is a great storyteller, and he was on the front line of one of the most vital scenes in music history. You got to read the book. It's awesome. And Miles in this conversation was fantastic. So here we go. Me and Miles Copeland having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. in LA where we're, uh, we hear that Europe is opening up but we don't yet know we can't find any definite information to say yes you can fly don't worry about it so we're looking at tickets to buy now but we're afraid to buy them because we're yeah. afraid who knows you know what's your if everything was great what was your plan where, where are you off well we, we'd like to go I mean I haven't been to Europe since November of two thousand, well over a year ago so 2019 so i we have a place in france so we wanted to get there by mid-june you know um the last year must have been weird for someone like you who's always out in the world um this must be strange well actually i ended up you know at the beginning of the year thinking well what am i going to be doing and you know i had somebody tell me well you should write a memoir you know and i've been people telling me for over years you know i should do that and i said well what else am I going to do? So I just sat down and started writing. And before I knew it, you know, three or four months go by and I'd written the damn thing, you know? So, yeah. So I then thought, well, you know, all right, I better find a publisher then. And I sort of went from there. The book's cool because I, I think you paid as much detail to what you put in as to what you didn't put in. It seems like you tastefully decided to make decisions not to tackle certain things. I thought that was actually really cool. Well, you know, the thing is, if you're in the business for 50 years, there are going to be a lot of things that went on that might have been important to me, but I'm figuring, well, will the average person really care? You know, I mean, there were some acts that I really loved that didn't succeed or, you know, there was just really no reason to get into it. So I think one has to edit to some degree, you know, and not put everything in, you know. And so I, at one point I thought, well, maybe I'll do a second book and put in stuff that's left out, you know, but the reality is that, you know, people remember the big things and don't remember the small things. And that's just a fact of life. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's really true. I also think that sometimes like, you know, Dante was in exile and uh, he settled all his scores politically in, 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 you know, in the inferno. And I don't think you did that. I think you just told it the way it was. And I think you, I think you did what you had to do. I thought it was a really great book. I really enjoyed it. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I tried to make it entertaining as well as informative, because when I when I first started writing, um, I actually thought what I, I I didn't really like the idea of a of an autobiography or a, you know a memoir because it, it's it's sort of smacked of ego you know like uh, this is what I did and aren't I great kind of thing so I, I I wanted it to be more of a motivational stroke marketing book to sort of so people could read it and learn something out of it. Because as I have always said, I learned as much from my mistakes as I did from my successes. And a lot of those would apply to almost any business. So if I could write it in a way that it would have a universal appeal, that's a lot more interesting than, you know, isn't it interesting that I happen to have a CIA father in Egypt? You know, I mean, 
how many people care? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a very unusual um, backstory. So I think that probably is why people care so much. You know, it's so it's kind of interesting. Well, I think there are things that relate to it because, you know, we assume we, America is involved in the Middle East. You know, I mean, we, we just recently, uh, you know, the war in Israel and the Palestinians and, and the Egyptians getting involved and we've got troops in in Afghanistan, we've had them in Syria. So, you know, we, we, it's interesting for Americans to know how people think over there. And that was part of what I was trying to do in the book as well. When I would discuss going up in Egypt, Lebanon, it would be really things that I'd learned there that could be applied and, and Americans should realize because it's easy to be insular, you know, growing up in, whether it be Birmingham, Alabama or Des Moines, Iowa, you know, you can imagine that everybody thinks like we do but they don't. Yeah, and I also think that the background that you that you have, you know, I think it sort of taught you really early on that to be, I don't know, you, it seemed to me like you look at the acts on IRS and all the people you've dealt with in your life, it's a really massive spectrum of people. I mean, from the, the cramps to all the way to Maya Sharp to the belly dancing stuff, it's like, it's everybody's in there. I almost wonder if your, your upbringing taught you how to be someone who could almost... Um, be really inclusive and open to almost everything. Cause I mean, you cover all the genres in your, in your work. Well, you know, in a way I, I went for things that I thought were not being heavily competed for by all sorts of other people. So, you know, if world music, for instance, you know, how many of the big companies are really chasing world music, but there's some great music happening all around the world. As you know, people may be discovering now on Spotify or something, but you know, a few years ago, who would know whether there's an interesting group in Norway or not, or right. in Lebanon, or in or anywhere, you know? So I think um, I've always been sort of open to interesting music wherever it comes from, and having grown up in a in a world where it didn't really matter um, where it was, that that it can still be interesting. And so I, I, I was, I did not have an insular upbringing, put it that way, you know. I mean, I I was, I. <sighs> people in in overseas countries especially smaller countries they tend to really look to the wide world because their little country is so unimportant you know if you're in lebanon for instance you're interested in what's going on in saudi arabia in iraq in japan and the u.s and particularly the usa you know where right. you grew up in usa you think that's it you know where lebanon what is that you know is that a country <laughs> <laughs> well i mean there, there's a kurt vonnegut book called man without a country and I always think of you as a man with all of the countries. I mean, you seem to me like somebody who you were around so much. Did it confuse you in terms of identity when you were growing up? Or did you feel you're just a citizen of the world? If I grew up in Lebanon, I mean, I was an American. And I would look upon every other person who was an American there as a compadre, you know, whether they be black or white or green or purple, you know, where if I grew up in Alabama, there would be the white folks and the black folks and the different groups and they would all be separated so i think there is an advantage in a way of growing up overseas because you you have a greater sense of identity yeah so when you did go to alabama did you feel sort of like what is this place or did you, did you feel like a u.s citizen when you when you went back there or did well you i i was thrust into i mean when i arrived in birmingham you know i was getting ready for the selma riots and all that and one of the first you know when i bought my first car you know i had somebody say to me y'all can drive and they they just assumed that people over overseas were i guess backwards or something you know or they had really no con 
the reality was they really had no concept of what it was like growing up in a place like the Middle East, you know. You know, they just assumed, the, you know, I guess they'd been reading Lawrence of Arabia or something, you know. But th that's really the, the impression that I got when I went to Alabama. That would not have been the case in New York, probably. Right. Uh, or California, maybe, you know, but certainly in, in, in Alabama, it was, you know. I mean, you know, the girls were looking at getting married. Uh, things were very insular. They were very few people would have thought about, you know, traveling to the north, you know, Yankee land, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, ins you know, the insularity of America became very apparent when I went to Birmingham, Alabama. In a perfect world, how does that insularity get defeated? You know, how would how would Americans have been uh, how would it have been different in, if things had gone better, in your opinion? Well, I think now that, you know, given the Internet and people have access to the world in a much better way than they did back then. You know, I mean, when I first arrived in England, you know, and doing rock and roll in 1969, there were two TV stations. You know, right. There, there was one radio station you would listen to. And the only other place to hear pop music was on, you know, stations that were on a boat out in the English Channel, you know, that were illegal, you know. So people forget that, you know, back in the early 70s, you know, England was pretty backward, you know. Uh, you couldn't even eat in England, to tell you the truth, you know. I mean, eating was one of the, you know, would be a pleasure of life, but not in England, you know. It, now, of course, you have probably more three-star Michelin restaurants in London than you do in Paris, you know. But back then, you know, if you ordered fish and chips, they would come in newspapers and you would have black ink on them, you know. And uh, so, you know, I watched England sort of progress through its uh, very, um, let's say, left-wing era Mm -hmm. into the Margaret Thatcher era to where it is today, you know, so you see this transition. And I think America has had a sort of a similar transition, although maybe not as dramatic as one would see in a place like London. But um, still, when I go to Alabama now, you know, all those drinking fountains that said white only don't exist anymore. You know? right. Um, right. Racism is, if it's there, it's much more discreet. You know, people would not just automatic. When I arrived in, in, in Birmingham in 1962, it was like an accepted fact you could be racist and be blatant about it. And nobody thought any, anything of it. You know, it was sort of like being in Beirut, where if you were a Muslim, you would look down on Christians. And if you were Christian, you looked down on Muslims. So I, I was surprised when I got to Birmingham and found out that it was all the same there except that in there it was the color of your skin versus your religion. Mm. And so you didn't really feel very in touch with your own Southern roots with your, from your dad's side? No, not really, because I, and, and I found that, you know, it was interesting for a couple of years, but after a while it was like pretty boring because everybody was sort of looking inwards, you know? I mean, most of my classmates were thinking they would get a job in somewhere in Alabama and that was life, you know, thinking about, you know, going overseas or to London or to Paris. It's like, why would you go over there? You know, yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me that in the end of the book that it comes full circle and that the music of the Middle East becomes the sort of the angle where you go business wise. When you were, when you were younger, I knew you talked about getting records from America. 
did Middle Eastern music at all have a connection or land with you? Or did you largely ignore it being a teenager? I think being a teenager, being an American, I was listening to, to American music. But of course, you were exposed to Arabic music. But I didn't really relate to it until much later on when I guess it had subliminally been affecting me. And when I heard sort of Western music merged with Arabic music, as you would heard in Paris with the immigrants from Algeria who were bringing Arabic instruments and mixing in with Western instruments. And you realize that there was a affinity between the two cultures really. And it got me very interested in, it was like a new way to look at uh, Western music. Much like my brother was saying to me when, when, they, when he discovered reggae, because reggae is, the accent is first and third bar, you know, umpa, umpa, where rock and roll is normally umpa, umpa. So it's reversed. So you can take the same song and do it reggae, which makes the song sound very different, but it's exactly the same song. So that's a very interesting way. In other words, you've injected some other element that sort of changed and revitalized music for you. And yeah. Reggae did that for the police and it sort of opened their eyes to different ways of interpreting music. And I think for me, when I heard Middle Eastern music mixed with Western music, it opened my eyes to the potential that, you know, a lot of these influences from around the world could be incorporated into, into Western music. Yeah, the seed was probably planted when you were a kid. You just had no idea that because you weren't really paying attention. Yeah, to that's it. probably true. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's probably the same for Stuart, you know, when he went into the police, because the police were always looked upon as, you know, being fairly adventurous musically, you know, they incorporated reggae and various other things. And I think, again, probably subliminally, you know, Stuart was affected just like I was. Yeah, and I think the police don't get the credit for doing that. I think the Clash get the credit for, for pulling the reggae into the music, but I think the police kind of did it first, actually. <laughs> it seems like yeah. they were, they beat them to it, but who knows? Yeah, well, the Clash got a lot of, Clash and the Sex Pistols, when the punk thing started, they got a lot of attention, uh, more than their, than their success would have warranted, because the police were 20 times more successful than both of those groups put together, when you want to look at, you know, album sales and ticket sales and at concerts and whatever, you know. Uh, I sometimes find it, I'm a, I'm a little resentful sometimes when I see people talking about, you know, the Sex Pistols or the Clash, and not mentioning the police because I, you know, the police were a lot bigger. And I actually went with the Sex Pistols to, to Holland. I, I booked right. them and tried to get them shows, you know, and I realized they wanted to be a band. But of course their manager, Malcolm McLaren was more interested in press, which he was pretty brilliant at, to be frank. Um, and they were never really a musical group more than they were a press phenomena. Yeah, I mean, in a way, if you want to look at today, and you say, well, Donald Trump, the more outrageous he was, the more press he got. I mean, they, people kept saying he sucked the oxygen out of everything else because you say something crazy, you're gonna get attention, you know? And the old saying in press, which I talk about in the book a lot, you know, really, if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, the more outrageous, the more uh, crazy things are, the more attention they're gonna get, you know? It's why a lot of rock bands uh, adopted some wild clothes, you know, whether Lady Gaga, if she went out in a you know, suit looking very straight, would she have got the attention? Or would Elton John, the Elton John movie have happened if he, if he had not been in rehab? I mean, the movie opens with him in rehab. You know? Right. 
the Beatles long hair. That's the first thing I heard about them. You know, I didn't hear about their music first. I heard about the fact that they were long haired guys from Liverpool, you know. So, so it's the sort of uniqueness, the difference in the look, either your kiss, take, take kiss as an example, painted faces looking like devils, you know, it got attention. You see a photograph of that, you go, what's that? You know, where if they'd shown up in Brooks Brothers suits, they probably would have got no attention at all. Well, then they would have been the day. They, of, yeah. You know, like I say in the book, you know, it's from a marketing standpoint, a lot of it is, you know, finding some sort of identity that means you can identify something very quickly. It's like when I when the police walked in and they were all with blonde hair, you know, which I didn't invent, either did they. It was for a Wrigley Spearmint gum commercial. But when I saw it, I realized that was a unifying factor. Yeah. And we used that blonde element as a as a selling factor, you know, throughout the the history of the band. And I think even the name, when Stuart came up with the name, I mean, when he was asked, well, why did you choose the name of the police? And he said, because uh, there are cars all over the world that are going to be advertising my group. I always thought of you as my generation, because I grew up in the 80s, and I, I always thought of you as my generation's kind of Warhol, in the sense that you were you were everywhere, and you and you had the ability to shapeshift and and be be in every scene, whether it was the fall or the cramps or, or the list goes on. Um, did you feel that you, based on your on your childhood and your travel experiences, did that help you walk into a room and feel like I can I can find a way through this? In other words, were you never intimidated by any situation you got yourself into? I was never really intimidated, although I, I had to realize pretty quickly with certain groups, you know, like take the cramps as an example, you know, there were other groups as well, whether it be Dave Wakeling or Wall of Voodoo or whatever is that there is always this assumption that if you're on the music business side of the of, of the world, in other words, you're the businessman, that somehow you're different from the guy that's into the art, you know? So, right. you know, the cramps would look upon me as the enemy, no matter what I did, you know, I could paint my face blue and I'd still, if I was the record company, I would still be the enemy. So I would find myself, you know, traveling with the cramps, driving the vehicle, helping him with equipment, going into a restaurant, getting thrown out of the restaurant with the cramps, but they would still look upon me as that guy over there who's the record company, therefore he has to be the enemy. So there was no way that they were ever gonna like me. And I had to kind of come to terms with that, whereas I loved them, I thought they were great, you know. But I recognized the fact that, you know what, I'm never gonna be close to them because they're never gonna look at me as like I, I'm, I could be like them. They, they would take one look at me and realize that, you know, he's somebody different. Kind of a reality and that was with a lot of the bands you know i mean yeah. Wall of Voodoo, you know was kind of the same and um you know they would always look upon you as the businessman and a lot of times i was sort of thrust into this you know like take for instance you know sting would would call me up sometimes he said miles 
I just got an offer to support some charity and I'd love to do it, of course, but, and it's a worthy cause, but you know, I, I, I'm doing six other charities and there's no way I can do that. So can you, and I told them, yes. So can you call them up and tell them, you know, I'm not available, you know? So I would have to be the bad guy to get on the phone to say, sorry, you know, Sting would love to have support your cause, but you know, uh, he can't do it. So guess who gets to be the bad guy? Me, you know? So Sting ends up being uh, the nice guy who would have done it, except that his nasty manager said no. Right, right. What about someone like Marky Smith, who, you know, I read his book and he talked about the idea that the fall were him, for him were a job, which is why he didn't dress like a punk rocker. He dressed like in slacks and a, and a shirt like he was going to work. Did you have any, any relationship with him at all? And what was your take on him? No, I never had a deep relationship with him. I mean, we signed the band to Step Forward Records and they, they really ended up being the most important act on that label. You know, Mark Perry and I found them and we signed them. And, uh, but they were in Manchester, they were not in London. So, you know, there was proximity issues, you know. And I was running around back and forth with the police or squeeze or whatever. So a lot of the bands, you know, you'd sign them, you'd put out a record and then somebody else within the company would deal with it, you know because I'm off in America or whatever, you know. But I've always sort of kept an eye out. I mean, his lyrics were very interesting, always. He was yeah. somebody that was important. So I would not say that I was close in any way, but I was aware of what they were doing. And we signed them because they were interesting. You know, a lot of labels wouldn't have, you know. And I, I really felt basically, I mean, I had a simple rule. If I like it and I think it's important, then... I'm going to sign it if it's if if I can afford it, and you know there, I'm not such a freak that I'm the, I'm I'm going to be the only person in the world that likes this. There must be other people like me, and you know how bad could it be? Now in some cases, the band would go on and sell millions of records. In other cases, they wouldn't sell very many, but that really was not, particularly in the early days of IRS and the punks, it was really not about quantities. It was more about doing stuff you actually like to do. And the fact that it was affordable, which is one of the big points I make in the book, is that if, if you make the answer yes to be easy, you're going to get yes as an answer. If it's affordable, you're likely to be able to do it. You know? Right. And uh, I think, you know, if, if, for instance, you know, people say, well, you know, you made that deal with A&M, weren't you clever? The reality was, if I'd gone into A&M and asked for a big advance for the police, they would have told me to get out of their office, you know? So I went in there and said, look, I'm going to offer the band to you for free. It's yours. You've got the record. Now listen to the music because the only thing I could get to sell and sell the band was the music. So I needed to eliminate from the conversation, any thought of, well, is this going to eat up my budget, my, 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 my budget for the year? What'll happen if, if they don't work? Is am I going to get fired or all the kind of things that, would run through a person's mind, you know. The same goes for IRS records. When I went into Jerry Moss in, in Los Angeles and I said, look, I've got all these bands in England that really would like their records out in America and I would love to create a label with A&M and here's the deal. I won't ask for your money. Just get your salespeople to say, tell you what they think they can sell. Yeah. So you've got no risk, you know, your own people will tell you. I'm not pushing for anything, no money at all. And he said, well, okay, well, we'll do a deal. He said, let me hear the music. I said, ah, but that's the only caveat. You right. can't hear the music. Because I knew if he'd listened, he would have said, well, no, because he wouldn't have seen what I saw, you know. 
And uh, that's how IRS started. It started basically, I got no money from Jerry Moss. And thankfully, a lot of those punk groups couldn't get deals in America. So the Buzzcocks gave me a record for relatively little money. And I would sign bands in America for almost no money. I mean, even the Go-Go's, that, that was, would have been considered a cheap deal by anybody. It, it was expensive for me at the time because I didn't have any money. But, you know, it was for the Go-Go's, they, they thought they would be worth a lot more money, but nobody would sign them. So they accepted my offer. Well, luckily for us, we had a number one record. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my dad went to high school with Jerry Moss, and I, the idea of uh, even my dad listening to the Buzzcocks, I would have liked to have seen Jerry Moss listen to the Buzzcocks. Yeah, well, <laughs> thankfully, he didn't get a chance. <laughs> yeah. um, do, do you have a relationship with him still, and, and, or at least respect for him? Yeah, I, uh, he's one of the very few people I would look at and say, you know, there's a really great man, you know. I mean, I only had a couple of run-ins with him. I tried to sign the B-52s. I right. loved that band, okay? I mean, Rock Lobster and all the songs, there was, there was humor in them. There was, they were just something that I, I, they were perfect for IRS. But because I needed money to sign them, because by the time I wanted to sign them, they were already, they'd had a manager and they were demanding money and whatever. So, you know, I went into Jerry and said, look, I need help to sign this act. And he said, well, okay, let me hear the music. And of course, because I needed his money, he had a right to hear the music. So he played Rock Lobster and he looked at me and said, well, sounds like a college band. No, I won't give you the money. So I did not sign B-52s. And that was like maybe one of the only times that Jerry and I dis you know, disagreed. But we went out to horse races before, you know, later on. And I consider him one of the great guys of the music business. And you still have a relationship with him? Are you still friends? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, his, um, Herb Alpert's daughter lives across the street, you know, from where I am now. And, and uh, I always consider, I saw Jerry Moss in his office a few years, you know, earlier in the year. And, uh, you know, I consider him still one of the great guys of the music business. And, you know, I wish I, you know, he spends more time in, in, in Hawaii. And of course, we can't travel now. So I have not seen him lately, you know. But I consider him one of my, you know, closest friends, really, in the music business. When I finished the book, I thought to myself, I wonder who Miles is still friends with. My guess is that you and Jules Holland have to still be friends. Yeah, I love Jules Holland. I mean, the thing about him that was so great, sort of like the police, really, was that he was willing to try anything, you know. And you could throw out an idea, even if it was nutty, and he was predisposed to say, well, okay, why not, you know. And the police would do the same thing. But I had so many artists over the years that you'd throw out some idea and they, they would agonize over whether it was a good idea or not. And by the time they you know, flushed it out, you'd lost interest in the idea. You know? So I had artists that I would say were equally as talented as the police, but they were too worried about what their friends would say or, you know, will, you know what will the market say? You know, take Pat McDonald, you know, I had a rebuttal. Yeah offer a million dollars to do a commercial on Future So Bright. And he just would not let the song go. And I kept saying, but you know, you're going to get half a million dollars in your pocket. You can buy a house. And he went, well, no, I can't let my song go. You know, it's going to sell out. And I'm going, you know, I mean, the reality was if, if Reebok had done a commercial for, with Future So Bright, it would have got huge coverage. It would have broken the record wide open. Yeah. McDonald would be a rich man right now. Yeah. You know? And the reality was that he was 
too stuck on the idea that no, my songs will never go to commercials, you know. And I had a song called Hairstyles and Attitude that he wrote that we got a Clairol wanted to do a commercial and then that was turned down. I mean, I turned down $3 million for him. Well, I wonder now that Pat's a little bit older, I wonder if he <laughs> looks at his bank account now and says, well, maybe I, maybe I should have should have taken it. Well, I, I would like to think he thinks that, but I have spoken to him not so long ago and he still has this idea that he wouldn't let it. I think he's kind of embarrassed to say, yes, today I would have done it. I think he still says, no, I wouldn't have because those offers aren't there now. But he's still a great writer and he's doing songwriter retreats and all that. And I think he probably, you know, if it was today, I would hope he would say, yes, he would take the money. Yeah, oh God, yeah. Um, in, in terms of, for you as a fan of music, were you able to compartmentalize and, and if you heard something you went, I love that song, it rings every bell in my heart. But then there's the other party, which is a businessman, which you're hardwired for, where you go, I could sell that. How, how do you distinguish the two? How do you compartmentalize those two parts of you? Well, in the beginning, the first part would have been relevant. In other words, I like it, it's cool, let's sign it. Because okay. I can afford it. Later on, when I've got a staff of you know 50, and I got rent to pay in, in several countries, and you know you're, you're you know you're you're you know that your number two or your number four you know whoever your radio guy or whatever is going to come in for an a raise you know you've got to make money so as time goes on you begin to have to shift your brain to be thinking in terms of well I've got to be able to have something that sells records and this is one of the great dramas and in a way part of the story of the book is that you know we started off as a rebel. We could do what we wanted because it was inexpensive and nobody was there chasing us basically. Later on, the world woke up to the fact that IRS Records was successful and that you know this punk rock thing wasn't crazy after all. Um, and I began to go to concerts and find there were other people there competing for the acts. And you know, you had to find things that would sell because you had to pay the rent, you know. And that was one of the unfortunate realities is that I would have said that, you know. IRS at the beginning was great fun because you could sign anything you wanted. It was great. We were adventurous. We could sign the suburban lawns, Oingo Boingo, Wall of Voodoo, the cramps, and sell records. You know, five years, 10 years later, we had to be looking at acts that we thought would really sell. So you had to have a broader perspective. And sometimes you would sign things that you didn't really necessarily like so much, but you knew they would sell. And I think that's the kind of drama that labels go through is that they are, things change with the label. You know? Right. It's like you grow up and you, you, now you've got a wife and three kids and you've got school to pay for. It's different than when you were a single person, you know, and, you know, footloose and fancy free, you know. So that change, which I kind of go through in the book as well, is something that, other companies have gone through, you know, that, that the world wakes up to whatever their, their business was. And all of a sudden there's competition. They've got more staff. They're taken, they're, they're taken, they're taken seriously all of a sudden. And that changes things. So were you able to be a civilian and just enjoy music for the pure sake of enjoying it? Or were you always having the business brain kind of intervene? Well, I, I always liked, I preferred to be, enjoying the music, you know, but I, I had to come to the realization that, 
you know, I, I meant something to some people different than what I looked upon as myself. I mean, I'll give you an example, which I talk about in the book as well. I spoke, I was a keynote speaker at one of the big music seminars, you know, and I walk off the stage after making my speech about, you know, music and all that sort of good stuff, you know, I don't even remember what I said, but I walked off the stage and this girl comes running up to me and hands me a tape. And she promptly faints and falls on the floor. And I'm thinking to myself, the first thing that came to my head is I looked around at everybody and said, I didn't touch her, you know, thinking that, you know, <laughs> but then I realized what had happened was she had come face to face with the person she thought that could change her life. I was the vehicle to make her a star. She handed me the tape and she was so overcome with seeing this person who could help her that she fainted. And that was probably the first time I realized that, you know, I meant something to people that I thought I was just some rock and roll manager and doing music I liked, you know, whereas to other people, I was the ticket to fame and fortune, you know, and that, that, that actually was quite a shock. Did it kind of mess with your head a little bit thinking like, wow, I'm fairly powerful in that, <laughs> in that regard. Well, you know, I, I think that I was so busy running around, you know, with the police or whatever, I didn't really have time to think about it, you know. And the reality is, you know, once you start having success, you've got to keep it going. So with the police, we I was always trying to come up with new things and it was a new tour to do and a new album to do. And, you know, whether it be Squeeze or Jules Holland or whatever, you know, you were always, and, and with the record company, you were constantly looking for new acts to sign. So you really didn't have time to sit back and mull over, you know, where you were in life, you know, until, you know, I actually, the first time I really did it is when I sat down and started writing the book. Mm. You know? And then I began to remember things that I had forgotten about, you know, and acts that I wondered what happened to them. I loved them. You know, there was a group in England called Yip Yip Coyote. I thought, what happened to them? They were so good, you know, and I began to look up to those people. Maya Sharp, you mentioned earlier, you know, who I just got an email from today, actually, you know, I brought her to my songwriter retreat because she had a talent as a songwriter. So a lot of the people I worked with, I was, you know, they didn't really work out as a rock band, but I figured they were good at something else. So I would always try to find something within everybody that I worked with that I could promote, whether it be Greg Wells, who I saw as a great musician and could be a great producer. He's ended up as one of the world's top producers. Same with William Orbit, who ended up producing Madonna. Yeah. You know? And I mean, he's just, a, I, I gave him his first production job, you know, Jules Holland, who was just this great character and a person I happened to really like and I thought would make a great sort of TV presenter. And lo and behold, he's now the biggest TV presenter in England. You know, he's an, he's an OBE. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Order of the uh, Empire or whatever, you know. When I asked him what that actually meant, he said, well, Miles, you don't have to call me sir just yet. <laughs> well, he's also he's also the best at the, at his job. I mean, he it's hard for me to think of anyone who does it better than Jules. He's one of my all time favorites. Because not only is he a great musician, he's just a person you automatically like. Yeah, he's got, he he's got a kind of humility about him. Yet you know he's great. You know, so he he just has the charms to him. And I, you know, that's one of the reasons. You know, somebody asked me the other day if you had to pick one of the musicians you worked with, who would you like to go have dinner with? And it would it would be Jules Holland. <laughs> But I have to say, there are people like Johnette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde, you know, who who's a who's mercurial, but she's such a fun person. I would go out with her too, you know. 
Yeah. Um, Stan Ridgeway, I have great respect for, although he probably wouldn't take my phone call, you know. Is that right? Uh, I think he's one of these guys that probably thinks that I'm a businessman and, you know, I'm somebody over there, you know. Um, the cramps, of course, you know, Lux Interior is not allowed around anymore, but, you know, I, these are people that I find interesting, you know. Um, but jo Johnette had been interviewed, came actually to the house about six months ago, and we had a great chinwag. You know, she was great. But I had fights with her over the time. She threw food at me. I know. Yeah. Um, and in a way, that that's part of the game, you know. So I think as a rock and roll manager, you know, you have to be kind of open to things. And maybe, like you were saying, that maybe growing up in the Middle East made me more open than I would have otherwise been. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say what I would have been if I'd grown up in Des Moines, Iowa, you know, because I didn't. When you look at your own family and your own kids, do you try to give them a similar experience in terms of like, let's go see the world, let's go take it in? Well, they, um, you know, my, my youngest son is, is doing music. My youngest son, Axton, is doing music. Um, he's probably the only one in, in, you know, they all listen to music, obviously, you know. My uh, middle son is in Germany right now doing stuff that I don't really understand with computers and satellites and God knows what. My oldest son is in animation, you know. And, you know, they've been to, they've been to France. I took them to Egypt. Um, they've been to London, you know, so they, yeah, they, they've gone, my wife is from Argentina. So they, they've gone there. So they, they have a more of a sense of the world than, 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 you know, somebody growing up like my father did in Birmingham, Alabama, you know. But my father was actually interesting. Here he is growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. But if it hadn't been for World War II, he probably would have still been there. Right. But he gets stationed in England. He meets my mother who was in British intelligence. And then he gets assigned to help form the CIA and gets stationed in Syria. And that's where I grew, started growing up was in Syria, you know. So you, you get your, your, you're throwing monkey wrenches into your life all along the way, you know, and you, you learn from those things, you know. Did you become a pretty good improvisation in terms of improvisation? Was that a skill you acquired because you recognized early on, like, you don't know what's going to be thrown at you in this world? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you, I mean, I really didn't ever plan on going in the music business. You know, it was sort of what the hell, why not? You know, I like music, so I've got nothing better to do type of thing, you know. Well, a lot of businesses or a lot of walks of life, you can say that for. Now, if you want to be a doctor, you've got to go to med school, you know, or right. if you want to be a lawyer, you got to go to, you know, take the bar exam, you know. Uh, if you want to be a scientist, you know, there are certain things that you have to have the background for. But there are a lot of business, you know, starting a restaurant, you know, if you happen to like food and you know a good sushi from a bad one, you know, you could probably start a restaurant, you know. Um, do you need to go to school to learn how to do that? Probably not, you know, and there are a lot of businesses like that. And I think that's the sort of businesses that I went for um, because the fact that I had an MA degree in economics and, you know, international finance, how did that help me? It didn't, you know, I, I could have avoided going to college altogether and still done as well, basically, because I was really going by instinct and flying by the seat of my pants. You know, I, I, I basically went with music that I happened to like. And my only caveat was, well, it's got to be cheap enough that I can afford to do it. Was it hard to explain to your parents at the time? Like, let me tell you a little bit about the cramps and this business venture I'm doing right now. 
What was their take on it? I thought I was crazy until I walked in with my first check for Wishbone Ash for an advance. And back then it was what, 1971 or something. It was $20,000 or something, which was pretty reasonable amount of money back then. And I said, here's our advance for the first album. And he looked at me and said, well, son, you're on your way. And he never questioned me ever since. But I think a lot of the bands that um, I worked with, he he and would have not appreciated because he would, but he did appreciate the police. Obviously, he had two sons involved in it. Well, actually, three because my brother Ian and middle the middle brother was an agent, you know, uh, and he could appreciate the musicality of Sting and, and what the band was doing. You know, the cramps he probably wouldn't have got. No, <laughs> no, or the Witch Trials record by the Fall. Maybe it wouldn't yeah, have connected right. with you. <laughs> um, the police reunion tour in 2006 or seven, you had nothing to do with that and it wasn't in the book. No, I, I was not involved. And I think it was really sort of probably politics behind the scenes of people who were then involved, who really didn't want me involved because they were afraid what might happen, you know, that I would be, you know, Sting and I would be friends again or whatever, who knows? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people to make money out of these bands that, you know, they don't really want somebody coming in from the outside, you know, at that point I was from the outside, you know, um, and uh, the police were big enough that, uh, you know, you could phone up a promoter and say, you want to book the police and you'd get yes on the other end of the line, you know? So in the early days of the police, nobody would say yes, you know? So I took them when they were nobody and took them to the height Later on, when they were big, you know, anybody could do it in a sense. At least that's what everybody thought, you know. Although I have always looked upon that uh, tour as they didn't get as much notoriety and press as they should have gotten because the police, I think, were a lot more important than that tour showed them to be. When they called it a day unofficially, they they kind of Jim Browned it. They left it there in their prime. Um, what when when they stopped they were the biggest band in the world did you were there conversations on your end as a businessman and as a brother where you tried to implore them not to do that or did you just left it alone well there were a lot of pressures to do that and actually we never said that we broke up right right things said i'm going to go solo and stewart said well i can do a record and we helped we we did we did a couple of music soundtracks and he started that and andy summers we got a deal with mca and we thought the police would reform again, but Sting's success sort of took off and he decided, well, you know, I'm doing pretty well on my own. Do I really need to have the police? And he'd sort of done that, you know? And I think Stuart and Andy would have welcomed it, you know, the police reforming. So would I actually, and so my brother Ian who was booking it, but you know, Sting was doing pretty well. So, and I was managing Sting. so. And I knew he didn't want to do the police again because he wanted to have more control over his songs. I mean, I think there's, for a guy like him who was writing the material, he had a vision of where, how the song should sound. And the more concessions he made to other people, the, the less it was about him. Mm. So I think going solo enabled him to have a more of a input onto what his song should sound like. So he would choose the musicians he wanted. And, you know, that's probably a natural progression, you know, yeah. where Stuart had a vision for what it should be. And so would Andy, you know, so all of a sudden you would have to take Stuart's interest in, in consideration 
plus Andy, plus me, plus the record company, you know, that's probably just too many fingers in the pie, you know. And uh, when he went solo, he, it was really him with me interjecting every now and then, you know. When Squeeze fires you, and then it's the end of the story, like in 82 or something, and I think, wow, that's a, that's a severed alliance. But then in 85, I think when they get back together again, you were reinstated. And how did that feel to come back after having been fired? Were you able to, it's like an ex taking you back. <laughs> like it's a little awkward or was it awkward? Well, you know, I think if you're in rock and roll, you've got to develop a thick skin. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe it's the same in politics. I don't know. I mean, there are, there are certain walks of life where the bigger you get to be known, the more crap is going to be thrown at you, you know. And there are a lot of assumptions that people are going to make. You know, I mean, I have people that think I'm this. I mean, I had, you know, articles written about me that I eat babies for lunch, you know, <laughs> because people just assume that I was this big time manager and therefore aren't big time managers really nasty guys, you know. So I think, you know, if you don't have a thick skin, you shouldn't be in the music business, you know. And getting squeezed back together again with Jules Holland involved, who I was still working with, you know, they looked upon it as a positive and so did I, you know. So I couldn't really hold a grudge for the past, you know. I mean, you're, you're, you're back in the game, so to speak, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think I probably did develop a thick skin, you know, where I could take abuse. And like I always used to say, you know, when I would, I like people because you could, they could take a punch, you know. So I could take a punch, you know. And the people that were too sensitive, uh, you know, do you really need that? You know, no, I'd, I'd rather have people that I could scream at and be friends with the next minute than, than have people that would take offense and go off in a huff, you know, which meant you would walk around with kid gloves all the time where you couldn't really express yourself. So I would much rather be in a situation where you could tell the truth and express yourself and the other side would not take offense. You set me up by the end of the book I thought that you and Sting would would be friends again and I don't know I don't know if you are but it seemed like because of the squeeze pattern I thought Sting fired you but maybe in the end you guys spent so much time together you know each other so well that the, the relationship repaired but I don't I don't know if it did or it did well I, I, I tell you this this may not be true but okay. if I walked down the street of New York and I bumped into Sting I'm sure we would throw our arms at each other and say go and go and have a you know coffee in some place and chat over old times, you know. Um, I don't think we would have, you know, a problem with that. There might be people around him that would object to that. But I think Sting and I, I mean, Trudy, his wife and I were friends. I mean, I, I wouldn't have any problem with it at all, you know, and I, I don't think he would either. And I think that probably goes for a lot of the acts. I mean, you know, people think that Johnette Napolitano and I hated each other, you know, if you look at some of the stories. Where she came to the house, we had a great laugh. We were talking for hours. It was great fun, you know. And I think the same would go with a lot of the acts that I worked with, you know, where you would think that somehow we were adversarial, but 
reality, no, you know. Um, and there are acts now that I've come to appreciate more than I did back then. I mean, REM would be the perfect example. I mean, I never really had, had much of a problem with them because they were so easy. And my the company took care of them and they never asked for anything, you know? So I was sort of never called upon. Whereas now I look upon them as something very special. And I would love to have, you know, lunch with Michael Stipe, you know? I'd have a lot to talk about, so would he, you know? But at the time, you know, when I talked about REM, they were pretty much in their own little world. And, you know, I was running around the world and I didn't really have to worry about them because they were taken care of within the company, you know? So things change, you know? But um, a lot of those acts that I had, had talked about years ago that I've emailed now when I was writing the book and I get some nice comment back. I mean, William Orbit, for instance, nice couple of long emails from William, from Jen, from Jenna Torturers, you know, wow. <laughs> all these strange groups that I'd worked with, you know, that, that come that email and come back and say, you know, great to hear from you. And, you know, we all mellow out later on, you know. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, you kind of go, we're all, we're all adults. We're getting older. Like, do we really need to be hanging on to old nonsense? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Great days. I mean, the reality was that, I mean, I look upon, you know, as Maya Sharp said today, I mean, I took her to the songwriter retreat where she met a lot of the people that she would not have met had it not been for me. And those people helped her become successful. Greg Wells, who I'm having dinner with tonight, you know, he, he says, you know, you, you changed my life. Whereas I signed him as a record act and that failed, but I recognized him and took him to the songwriter retreat. And he became a huge producer and very successful, you know? So he realized that, you know, well, maybe I wasn't a great person for a music act, but I was, you know, Miles saw something in me and put me in a position that I, I could fly and he flew, you know? I think that was, that's one of the things when I look back at the book and I think, well, okay, I failed there, but I found something, something else that really worked. Jules being a perfect example. Well, the Jules, Jules does very well musically. Yeah. But his real talent is in front of a TV camera, you know. I wonder if Jules, because he was such a flamboyant and charismatic person that he made Difford and Tilbrook just look kind of boring, even though, because you, you said your interactions with them, you say they're kind of quiet and hard to get to know. Um, and Glenn doesn't appear at all in the book. There's no conversations with him at all. But I've always said he'd be really intriguing because I think the two of them are the Lennon-McCartney of the New Wave era for sure. Um, I do communicate with Chris Difford. You do? He was at the retreats a couple of times, right? Yeah, I, he, and he, which he did copied. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so he, he actually is interesting because he writes very interesting lyrics. Glenn was so caught up in music. It was like he was on a different planet. And I think the same was felt by others. Everybody could recognize that he was this great talent, but he was really in a world of his own. You know, I remember Jules calling me up one day and saying, look, Miles, these guys are never going to like you no matter what you do, you know, and the reality is it, it, life was difficult. And that's when I just, I said to Jules, okay, I'm happy to take you on and I'll manage you. And, you know, but Jules recognized the fact that it was really two groups, you know, and that, that he was very different from the other guy, but he's still good friends with them. And, you know, Chris wrote lyrics for Jules and they play together occasionally, you know, and. And, um, you know, I, I think now if I went to London, I probably would like to go out with Glenn, you know, 
I would probably have an easier time with with Chris because he's more kind of open and is and is and has done things more. Glenn is still more caught up in in music, you know, and he probably still looks upon me as, you know, this businessman that I don't know if he could I don't know if he could relate to me and a lot of other people as well, really. I mean. So yeah, and I say in the book, you know, they were probably one of the most difficult groups I ever managed because there was such talent combined in them, but they were all like, it's like trying to herd cats. Yeah, right, right. You know, Jules was one way, Chris was another, Glenn was another, Gilson was bigger than all of them put together. You know, how do you combine them and to make an image that works, you know? Um, and it was difficult, but I, I've always loved that band. And I think they also were a lot more important than people give them credit for. I agree with you on that. And I, and you know, REM was obviously a huge band for me in the eighties. And those, those records were so important to me. And I was expecting in the book, I was expecting a long chapter and it was one of the shortest chapters in the book. And, and I thought, why is the Zucchero chapter longer than REM? But when I finished the book, Miles, I understood it. I got why you did that because REM, they kept their heads down. They did what they were supposed to do. They put out more records on IRS than anybody, I think, but they put probably the most out, right? Their trajectory of a career, they did it all the right, they did it the right way. They put the records out, they toured, um, they were consistent, and they they sort of uh, flew under your radar because they didn't give you any trouble. They weren't uh, trying to renegotiate or, or get, you know, um, have different angles when they had success. And so they got, it's almost like there wasn't much to say really about them. They just did it. They were by the book. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about the Go-Go's because they were, I mean, you know, they were crazy. Right. <laughs> they were wild. You know, they were fun. They were into drugs. They were, of course, I didn't know it at the time. I mean, I learned stuff watching the documentary, you know, but yeah. they were, they were a bunch of girls and they were different. You know, the cramps were different. Wall of Voodoo, all these bands, a lot of the bands were unique and different, you know, Whereas REM really was very steady. And now I look back and I think, who was really the great band? Well, you have to say REM was very special, you know. But they were like, no, people used to say, no, no drama, Obama, you know. Well, that was REM, no drama, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas Zuccaro was always a character. Yeah. You know? And he was interesting because here was this Italian megastar trying to win friends in places that were not going to accept him, you know. But I kept thinking he wanted to break America, but really he wanted to be big in his homeland, which is what he did, you know. But he got to be big in France and Spain and a lot of other places too. And he's a, he's a character, you know. And so he, 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 in a lot of ways, is more interesting, you know. And, and I mean, I, I saw Zucker. I went to a show actually with my wife a year, two years ago or something. And um, I hadn't talked to him in a while. And uh, I go backstage because I knew the promoter and everybody, you know, I, they said, well, wait in line. And I said, just go tell Zuccaro, Miles and Adriana are here. So this like road manager guy sort of says, well, you know, who are these guys? And goes and knocks on the door and says, Zuccaro, there's some guy called Miles Copeland here. Zuccaro says, send them in. <laughs> so Adriana and I, go straight into the dressing room. And I think we're in there for like 25 minutes or something. And everybody outside probably thinking, who the hell are those people? You know, but Zuccaro was charming and great, you know, and it was great fun to see him, you know, so he's that sort of character, you know. Well, this, this might surprise had, you. Great lines all along the way. You know, I remember him always saying, you know, he would go on stage and go, sorry about my English. 
but my English is like your pasta. Shit. <laughs> and I would go, you know, that's just such a great line, you know, and that's one of the things that I remembered about people like the B-52s, you know, when Fred would come out after every song and go, any questions? And I always thought that was so funny, you know. Brilliant. He would sing a song and he would say, hey, any questions? <laughs> or the Cortinas, you know, at the end of the end of their, you know, he would, the, the J Jeremy Valentine would introduce the group, you know, and, and he would come out and go, on bass, we have Johnny. And on guitar, we have Johnny. And on rhythm and guitar, we have Johnny. And on drums, we have Johnny. And my name is, and by that time, of course, the whole audience yells out, Johnny. And it was just so funny, really, that I, that alone I would assign the group for, you know. But their music was fun, too. You know, and they were these, these young kids that, you know, just got up there and did it, you know. But that that kind of introduction, that kind of fun element. So that to me has always appealed to me. People that could see the, and that was why I always loved Jules because he could always see the, the funny side of even tragedies, you know. Uh, he was just somebody that always looked on the bright side, you know. I felt that of all the people in the book, I thought Zucro had the most in common with you because I think that Zucro understood how to play the long game. He also understood how to manipulate media and how important it was. He had a vision that I don't think anybody else had. He was quite, quite brilliant, actually. Yeah, Zucro, I have a lot of um, time for Zucro because I think a lot of things, like when he asked me to book him for Woodstock, I said, Zucro, you're nuts. You know? <laughs> yeah. Who's going to care about you at Woodstock? You, know, you might have you know, a few hundred thousand people there. You might have 1,000 show up at your tent. You know? which is what happened, you know, but he had a bigger vision in mind. Yeah. He wanted to be the only European act to play Woodstock and that played all over Europe, you know, and I, I didn't really realize how much he had seen what his success was in America, how that would splash back in his homeland, you know, and, and that's been something that's been a reality. When I was asked to, to go to the Pentagon to advise hearts and minds about how to, how to make Americans loved over there, they were saying, well, shouldn't we like get John Bon Jovi to do a free concert in, you know, Riyadh or something? And I said, no, the opposite. Get a big Arab star and make him successful in America. That will splash back because the Arabs will say, wow, Americans love us. Hey, they must be okay. And that was true. That Zucchero knew that. And I later found out that there were, there were Egyptian, you know, this, this art, Egyptian artist that I worked with, with my belly dancers, you know, was, was Saad al-Zurayr. He wanted to come to America because if he played in America, he could sell himself as an international act. And that would up his fee in Egypt. He had, he had no idea that he'd ever be a big star in America, but he could be a bigger star in Egypt. And actually I went, you know, and we filmed him. We did bring him to America. And, I, and when I went to Egypt the next time and I went to see him in this really sort of bad area of, of, of Cairo, you know, where Americans don't go, you know. Right. There he was, you know, and his fees had gone up five times because I brought him to America. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you made me making five times as much money now as I, ha as I was making, you know, thank you, you know. And you realize that the, the perception of, of love artists around the world is how important America really is, not so much to make them big in America, but back home. 
And he offers a really good explanation as to why he lives there and why he drives the car he drives. He explains that, and it's really, again, very brilliant, very understanding of- It was a great experience because, you know, when I asked to go and meet him, I was told by my Egyptian minders, well, look, nobody goes to that part of town because it's too dangerous. And we're gonna give you an escort. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm gonna get a couple of policemen or something, you know, I show up and there's like 24 armed, you know, truckloads of army soldiers, you know, and police motorcycles. And, you know, it's like an army, you know, and they're all carrying machine guns. You know, we go into this rough part of town where, you know, it's dirt roads and donkeys and all that stuff. And we go up and I, you know, um, he meets me outside and he, I have to go up and meet his mother and take tea and all the traditional stuff, you know. But after, you know, 10 minutes up there, he says, well, you know, in Arabic, you know, we better go downstairs and because the villagers all probably think that I'm being arrested because all those soldiers down there, you know, and we go down and sure enough, there's a lot of yelling and screaming and he yells out, it's okay. This is a film crew from America. I'm being filmed for American TV. And the whole place went berserk. All of a sudden, I kept hearing, America good, America good. We were heroes because we were paying attention to their hero. We liked their hero. We were going to film him for American television. And this was, you know, look, this was exactly what I had said to the people at the Pentagon. You know, you show you like them, they will like you. You know, if you turn your nose up to them, they're going to think you're a snob and they're not going to like you. You know, it was basically Dale Carnegie, you know. Right, right. Win friends and influence people, you know, show you care about them. Listen, you know, be a good listener, you know. Um, So that was really part of the lessons that, you know, um, that that I learned growing up. And, you know, people like Zuccaro took to heart and knew instinctively. Yeah, I was really impressed by how brilliant he was. I, I didn't know that about him. I, I knew a little bit about him. I remember when the AM record came out in like 95 or 6, um, and it was on my radar just briefly. Uh, I didn't know that he was so, he was so canny and so smart because um, he really, yeah, he really I, is. He, he, one day I'm, I'm in Carrara where he had this little house and he, he says, Mike, let me play you this, you know, and he, he plays me the, the fifth iron butterfly out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I had no idea there were even anything more than the first one, you know. I mean, I knew Indigata DeVita, you know, but who knew they had a fourth and fifth album, you know. So he plays me a couple of songs and I'm listening to these songs. So why am I listening to this? And then I'd hear a little line and I go, oh, that's from your so-and-so song. And he was very good at picking out little bits, you know, that worked. And I'll bet you even the people who wrote the song had no idea that they, their baseline was the structure for a Zucchero song, you know. But he was very clever that way, you know. And, um, you know, so he could, he could find, he could see something and see within it something special. He would pull that out and he would use it himself. Very, very smart. Uh, not in the book, but I thought New York's answer to Jules Holland was Peter Zaremba. Um, you don't mention him, but what's your take on Peter? Well, Peter was interesting in that, in that he was one of those guys that we, you know, the flesh tones were sort of doing okay, but we're really not setting the world alight musically. But he was kind of like this personality who was interesting. And so we, we threw him in to do the cutting edge. And he became sort of the host of the cutting edge. He was great. Was better at, you know. Well, I do mention him in the book because there, there was one line, again, he, he says one line which again has always stuck with me. He said, IRS gave us rope, 
I gave us, he, Iris gave us enough rope to hang ourselves and we did, which was a, which was a great line, you know, um, because that was really it. My, my view was often, you know, you sort of open the door, but you need the act to go through the door. Yeah. My job was to find the door and open it. How did he get that gig? How do you get that gig? Well, how did, how did he get the IRS uh, um, cutting edge hosting job? How did you know that he would be the right guy for it? Because he really well, we was. we tried out various people, you know, and he was there and we, we, we tried out various people and his one worked, you know, and then we thought, well, can you do it again? And before we knew it, he kind of ended up as the host, you know. Um, a lot of things really weren't planned. I, the minute I saw him, I didn't say, ah, TV host, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sort of throw him into it, and you know he flies, and okay, hey, well, do it, do it again. You know, it was the same with Stuart with Rumblefish. You know, he was hired to do one song. You know, when we get up there and we see Francis Ford Coppola, and Stuart realizes that, you know, he's got nobody to do the score. I'm just going to start doing a few things on my own, and you know, next thing we knew, Stuart did the score to Rumblefish. You know, so he kind of, I opened the door. He went through it, you know, and I think that's really the ingredient is that, you know, people think that, you know, the record company, it, it's their responsibility to make you happen. Well, really, they opened the door, too. But in the end, you've got to make it happen, you know, and if you think that, you know, somebody else is going to make you succeed, well, you better be damn lucky, you know. Yeah. Most yeah. things, you know, the most they can do, the most I ever did was open the door or find the door open it and then say, look, guys, there's the door. Now, will you go through? In the case of the police, they ran through. Jules Holland wrote, you look at the bands that I succeeded with, they went through that door. <coughs> there were bands that would see the door and go, oh, well, gee, I don't know if that's the right door or not. Well, maybe I'll go through, or maybe I won't. And probably they didn't go through the door and probably that meant they failed, you know. Well, you talk a lot in, in the book about bands that kind of shot themselves in the foot. Um, band, like, for example, you know, R.E.M. putting, you know, seven or eight albums out with you guys, including the eponymous. And, but, I mean, that was quite an achievement because a lot of the bands like Fine Young Cannibals, it was two records. You know, you had uh, the list goes on of people who did like even like the English beat where it was like, you know, weren't that many records. Um, and, and you wonder, like all these bands that had opportunities and they overthought it, even the Pat McDonald story. It's like you're overthinking it. Your vision is very small. And a lot of them were their own worst enemy. Yeah, I mean, I always used to say about the police, look, we keep doing things. By the time, and we made mistakes, you know. But I said, by the time somebody discovered we'd made a mistake, we'd had two successes. Right. So we kept going forward, you know. And I think that was really the success of the police was the fact that we had this forward momentum. We could make mistakes. We could gamble. We could take risks. You know, playing in Egypt, was that, did that make any sense financially? No, we lost money doing that, but it made great photographs. It gave them a mystique, you know, it's great for a story, you know, it got me a lot of coverage, you know. So look at what things are and how can we use this, you know. Um, whereas people sometimes say things to face value, whereas really, you know, the interest, take a Greg Wells, for instance. I mean, if I looked at him only as a musician, recording artist, we would have failed, you know. Right. But if you look upon him as somebody that had a talent to write songs and work with other people and produce, he became a huge success, you know.
Um, and I think that was, if I, if somebody said, well, if you had to pick a ability that you seem to have had that others didn't have, maybe that would be it. As I would look for something valuable in each, each person that I worked with. So even in staff, you know, sometimes I would start with staff and I put them in, you know, Steve Tannett and who ended up as my managing director in London. He started off as an office. He started off as a guitar player in menace. And I ran into him at a club one day and he said he was operating a forklift. And I said, well, come and work in my warehouse. I'll make you a warehouse boy. And then he, he came up to see me one day and said, well, your salesman has just passed out on the floor downstairs. And uh, I think he's been, he slept there last night. And I said, well, Steve, let's go down. And we took him out and dubbed him in the street. And I said, Steve, you're now my salesman. <laughs> and so Steve picked up the ball. I opened the door and there he went. He went through, he became a top salesman. And later on the managing director of my record company, Henry Padovani was Stuart and the police. You know, he didn't really make it as a, as a guitarist for the police, but he knew music. And later on, I, I looked at him and I said, Henry, why don't you become my international guy? And I gave him a job as my international guy at IRS. And he's since become a big star in France, actually. He was, a, he was right. a, you know, one of the judges on the X Factor, you know. He was on billboards. So he grew, you know. But yeah. I think that's really the secret is that, you know, a guy like me, I, I, I've never made anybody a success whether it be Sting or Squeeze or Jules, what I did is I opened the door and I, where I found a door and opened it that they went through. Um, I was really impressed that you called bullshit on, on Ram Dass. That was my, one of my favorite parts of the, of the book. Um, what, what immediately turned you off? And can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I thought that was really funny. And I thought you were going, the only guy who's ever done that. So that was really cool. Well, I, I've always really, <laughs> look down on people who sell themselves as something they're not, you know, and, you know, whether it be Donald Trump today or Ron Doss back then, here was this American guy from Woodstock pretending he was an, an Indian and into all this spirituality stuff where I looked at India and I saw beggars on the street and, you know, horrible stuff going on and, you know, acid thrown in women's faces and, you know, the caste system and all these terrible things, you know, and, you know, people look at India as this great mystical place. And you're going, well, give me a break. You know, what's mystical about a million people being killed when Pakistan and India separated? You know, um, what's mystical about, you know, burning down the Sikh temples and, you know, which happened a couple of years ago, you know? I mean, yeah, there's spirituality, but there's also a lot of craziness, you know? And so people going in there to make this big deal, you know, I, I, I tell the story in the book of we, 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 were, we, were, we went to this temple to pay homage to this concrete elephant, you know, which apparently if you were having a business deal the next day, you go and you say a few words to the concrete elephant and throw a couple of rupees at the, in, the, in the little pond in front of it, and that will help you in your business dealing the next day. Well, I looked upon it as it's a concrete elephant for Christ's sake. How is that going to help you have a good, successful business deal? You know, whereas, you know, the people that were, I guess they were imagining they would have some, they thought they, maybe they let, maybe it was psychological. Maybe, maybe it did have an effect, but I would just see it for what it was. And I don't know that Sting was taken in by any of this, but he kind of went along with it, you know. It was, I, probably line of least resistance, because Sting was actually, is actually a very clever guy, you know. But, you know, 
if you're an entertainer, you kind of dabble with spirituality somehow, you know, you kind of like want to, want to incorporate that. You don't want to be the guy that's the business guy seeing things as they really are. You want right. to kind of live in this, in this world of things could be a lot nicer. That's what rock stars are supposed to do. It's the manager that has to be the, the hard-nosed, nasty guy. And that was me. Well, you called bullshit on the Ron thing, which I thought was really, really funny. But from a business perspective, you got to hand it to him because <laughs> it, it, it's working, right? Yeah. I mean, I have great uh, admiration for Sting. You know, I mean, uh, and he, 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 had, he had, had the ability to write great songs and perform and do it. I mean, there were some things that he didn't really get, you know. I mean, I, I talk about the, the, the Grateful Dead in the show. Um, and I looked upon them as, did I like their music? Well, not really. But I really understood why it worked and what their hook was. And I tried to get Sting interested in that hook because I think it would have made him, his, his business bigger. You know, this idea that, you know, you can, don't tell the audience what you're, what you're, what you're going to play and make it different every night and you could sell out twice as many shows because people would go to, you know, I thought that was brilliant. So I saw the good parts of the Grateful Dead and the merchandise and the imagery and all that. Whereas I didn't really like the music, you know, and I think the same goes for Bruce Springsteen. Again, somebody that I have great respect for. And I tell the story in the book about when we arrived in Costa Rica, it was staying Peter Gabriel, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Tracy Chapman, and you know, this, this, this show. And as we're driving in and we're looking at the audience and Springsteen sort of says to everybody in the bus, you know the song that's gonna win these people? La Bamba. Well, none of the entourage played La Bamba in their set, including Bruce Springsteen. But he looked at that audience and he recognized who they were. So he thought sort of throw out which in a way was sort of a challenge to say, if you do that song, you're gonna be the winner here. So the day of the show comes and you know, Tracy Chapman, of course, is not gonna do it. Peter Gabriel, no. Sting gets up and he's, he's just on before Bruce Springsteen and he does his set, no La Bamba. Springsteen goes out, does his set, halfway through it, he looks over at me. Sting and I are standing on the side of the stage and he looks over at me and Sting and sort of as if to say, I told you guys, watch this. He turns around, there were 70,000 people sitting down. He turns around, goes to the microphone and goes, la 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 bamba. The place went berserk. 70,000 people are on their feet. He stole the show at that moment. The rest of us didn't exist. And it was a, it was a fantastic moment where Springsteen had recognized who that was, that audience was, what would work for them, and he knew his job was to appeal to that audience, and he gave them that one thing that would really win them over, and he walked away with that show.
that moment, I recognized just what a great person Springsteen was. And, you know, I've always had a huge imagine, uh, um, respect for him ever since, you know. Did I always, you know, would I buy a Springsteen record? Well, probably not. But I wanted to like him yeah. because he was real. Well, and this, that's also why the book is so universal because really the, the message there is read the room, right? Read the room. It's so it's such an important thing to learn. Yeah, and I think you have to, I think to be successful, you have to give something to the audience. You know, you have to recognize them, not just sell yourself, you know? Right, right. <clears throat> and that's in a way, when I wrote the book, I thought, well, I want to write it from that same perspective. I want somebody, I want my son to read this book and get something out of it, other than knowing who his father was. I want him to learn something that he could apply to what he does in life, you know? And so I wrote the book from the standpoint of, I hope people get something out of this, not just knowing who I am and what I did, you know? And well, I, I think, think most of the acts that I really respected did that, that Springsteen, the Grateful Dead, even R.E.M. And that's why they were so so enduring. Uh, by the way, it wasn't in the book. I know it's a footnote to the label, but I remember a label called Primitive Man that put out like a Bears record and a Balancing Act record. I remember I was working college radio at the time. What was Primitive Man? Well, that was when we were trying to find things that, you know, other labels, would, we were looking to try to bring content in because we needed to pay the rent. So we'd find other labels out there that were picking up local groups, you know, that we would not necessarily see. And so we would give them an opportunity. We would open the door for them to sell records. It would be up to them to sign the acts. You know? I see. And we were hoping that out of those, that opening of a door and a record company coming in, that they would deliver to us stuff that would sell records and help us pay the rent. You know, So in that case, we kind of farmed out the, the ability to sign artists. So would I have signed any of those myself or not? I don't know but I gave the opportunity to somebody that I thought had good ears and would bring in interesting stuff, but it was really up to them to, to what, what they signed. So I could not say that I signed the balancing act or the bears, you know, I signed the label that signed them. Got it. So it was, wasn't, was one step removed. Was Adrian Ballou in the bears? Uh, he was in there somewhere and I can't yeah. even remember where. Yeah, I liked that record. I thought it was a good record. <laughs> I, I liked it. Um, I remember I was, that. I also loved the Beat Rodeo record, which was on IRS. I know you didn't talk about them, but I, I always loved. I always loved that band too. Well, there there were acts that I would have liked to talk about. Yeah. What could you do? There were a couple that I did talk about, like Fashion. Yeah, Fashion. I didn't know that. Were, by the they way, picked, they made a record that really was unique, and they really looked like they could be going places. And it was early on. And they were given every shot, but they were one of those bands that kind of dis disintegrated. And can you really put your finger on why? Was it me? Was it the record company? Was it the manager? Was it the band? It could have been all three. I don't really know, but they should have succeeded, you know. But unfortunately, that's what you go through in the record business. There will be those acts that come along that you just think are great. And then six months later, somehow they've disappeared. Why do artists get in their own way so much? Why are, why are artists always tripping themselves up? Creative people seem well, to really screw that up. A question. And I, I sometimes answer it and I say, well, you know what? You've got to be pretty crazy 
to walk out on stage and think you can entertain an audience of X number of people. And that craziness that you need to walk out on stage might also enable you to think you're great when you're not. Because I've had people come to me and say, put my record out, it's great. And then you listen to the record and you think, how could they possibly think this is great? They're out of tune, they're whatever. But then you realize that they're crazy. And that's what you need to walk out on stage. You have to have kind of a blind instinct to think that you can do it, you know? Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. The normal guy doesn't walk out on stage and think I can entertain 70,000 people. You know, you've got to have something in you that says, I can do it, you know? And that's, that's uh, it's a mixed blessing. It works for some people, it doesn't work for others. Well, and now that the record industry has changed so much that there are, that people, a lot of artists are doing it on their own. So they're making the business decisions that they probably shouldn't even be making. They need someone there to help. You need other voices to say, no, nah, I wouldn't do that. Do this. There is no, in some, in some cases, there is no Miles Copeland who is around to sort of open those doors. They're doing it all themselves. And I think some of their judgment is not the best. Well, you know, somebody has said to me, well, the music business all changed now. It's also different. And I said, well, you know, there's one truth that has never changed. And that is the first job of an act is to get noticed. You know, I, have, I had musicians say to me, well, it's about the music, man. And I go, well, you know what? No, it's not. That's number two. Number one is let the audience know that you exist. Then they can hear the music. If they don't know you exist, I don't know, it doesn't matter how good your music is. No one's gonna hear it. So the first job, if you're an act on your own, if you've got a manager or an eight, the first job is to get noticed, whether you do it through Spotify or taking an ad in a newspaper or doing a show in some crap club, get noticed, make somebody a believer. Then, you know, hopefully they'll listen to the music and like the music and you go on from there. But the job, so in other words, marketing, image, name of the band, all those elements that package the, 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 the product, it's the same as selling can of beans. It's really no difference. You know, how do I sell this? You know, if I've got to sit there and explain it for an hour before somebody's going to be interested, well, I've only got a few seconds. Right. You, look at commercial, you know, one of the best ways to educate yourself is watch commercials on TV. And you look at him and you say, it's only 30 seconds. Did I get the message? And you'll notice that on TV, a lot of commercials now use the same person to sell the product over and over. Because the minute you see that person, you know what the product is. So they don't have to tell you what they're doing here. They can just tell you the message that they want to say, whether it be Target or you know any of the insurance companies or the little Geico lizard. The minute you see that lizard, you know, oh, it's insurance. Now they're telling me it's cheaper. But right. you don't have to be told first, look, I'm about to tell you about insurance. You know, you already know that. And in other words, the, you've got 30 seconds to get the message across. Well, if you're a rock and roll band, you got maybe, you know, the, the fickle finger of fate. You're driving in your car, you could push a button and change channels. So you want to get them in the first 15 seconds or so. 
You know, I remember I watched a um, documentary on Motown the other day and I saw, you know, they said in there, you know, you've got to make the first 15 seconds of the song hook the person because otherwise they're not going to hear the rest of the song. So That's that right. first 15 seconds is the most important part of the song, you know, and it's true. You know, the attention span is so little. How do I get attention quickly? And I think I look at Donald Trump and I think, look at, look at, he got his image right. He said something crazy, you know, it's a way, it's a, mar his, it's a marketing lesson. Forget his politics and all that. Look at it as a marketing person would. And look at commercials as a marketing person would. What commercial, what commercial works, what doesn't. You can learn a lot from that. And I think a lot of musicians tend to think that, well, no, man, it's really about the music. And in very rare cases, that's, that's true. R.E.M., it was true. Yeah. <laughs> Most bands, no. Yeah, because Miles, if it was really about the music, Marilyn Manson would never have outsold the alarm. Exactly. I mean, it's that simple, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the truth. You know, yeah. how many REMs can you can you can you point to and say they did it the right way? They did it step by step and grew step by one. That's why I have huge respect for them. You know. Yeah. Both bands, it's an instant look. You know. I mean, country music is good at that. I mean, you watch country writers, how they write a song, they really believe in formula. Okay, you gotta hook them in the first 15 seconds. You wear a, wear a cowboy hat and people think it's country music. Okay, the, everything is kind of worked out. It's formula, but it works, mm -hmm. you know. That's why I always meant at the songwriter retreat, I took rock and roll people and country people because I knew the country people had the formula that rock people should incorporate, you know, and you put the two together. And my biggest songs out of the songwriter were always a mixture of a country artist and a, and a pop artist. You know, my first number of one country song, you know, Keith Urban, who, who came to the castle, wrote with the Go-Go's. That's when he wrote a number one song. Who would have ever thought that a Australian guitar player doing country music living in Nashville would meet two girls from the Go-Go's and they would write a song that would go to number one. No. Well, I put no. that group together. You know, they became, uh, and, and out of that unlikely scenario, a number one song was written, you know. Yeah, and also didn't Keith, I mean, he really found his confidence at those writing retreats because he was yeah. quite tentative. A lot of artists have credited the songwriter retreats as it changed their life, you know, and Keith, Keith is one of them, you know. Greg Wells, it changed his life, you know. Um, there were other artists I tried to get to go. I mean, Sting, I tried to get, to, not that he needed to be educated how to write a song, right? but he, he once said to me, well, if you go to Brazil and take this, this weird drug that the Hiawatha or whatever it is, I'll go to the songwriter retreat. Well, I've been anti-drug all my life because I keep thinking this brain is so, <laughs> I keep thinking some little strange thing can happen and it'll screw me up. So I've been afraid to take drugs, you know? So anyway, Sting has never come to the songwriter retreat. Yeah, I talked to Maya Sharp and she she just said those are such powerful, instructive, marvelous experiences. She she loves them. Yeah, you, I mean, John Bon Jovi came and he, yeah. he came up to me one day and he said, you know, where I live in, in New Jersey, nobody can get to me. I'm, I live in a cocoon. So here, I'm just one of the guys writing music like it was in the old days. And I'm just one of the guys. And he said, you don't know how important that is. 
And Cher, who came also for one week, said the same thing. She said, you know, here I've got friends. He said, you know, when I go back home, I don't have friends like I have here. Here, I, I'm going to leave this retreat and I'm going to have 20 some friends that I never had. I'm just one of the gals, you know. <clears throat> and, and one forgets the rarefied atmosphere that stars find themselves in, you know. And uh, people always said, well, the star, you know, Sting changed. Well, no, he didn't. The people around him changed, mm. you know. And I, I, like I said, when I walked off stage and this girl came and fainted in front of me, I was the same person I was two years earlier than that. Right. The person thought I was somehow the ticket to fame. You know, I didn't change. She did. What's your relationship? That's one of the things that happens to so many stars that, that, and they tend to gravitate towards other people who understand that because the average person just gets kind of enamored and, oh, well, how, how can I talk to so-and-so because he's a star or she's a star, you know? Well, they're just normal people, you know? Um, hard business to maintain a friendship? With somebody or is it or is it easier than than it's made out to be it's easier if you're also kind of famous you know yeah I, mean, I i get along with famous people just like i do unknown people you know i mean because I, I figure well you know you can learn from a homeless guy just like you can from a from john bon jovi actually. yeah um there are things that they go through and see that you don't see necessarily you know um so it, it is easy when you're a star to get detached because you tend to gravitate to other stars and eventually you can become detached from what's below you, you know. But it's not so much the fault of the star that it happens. It's really the fault of the people who think that somehow you've changed because they're afraid to talk to you, you know. So I, I see this transformation happening, but it really, it's not so much the star that changes. It's really the people around them and and and, you know, I, I say in the book, you know, there was one time where, you know, there was a great engineer with Sting. And, you know, when I went to listen to the record, I heard songs that should have been hits. And Sting looked at me and he said, you know, I like them the way they are. And I've kind of done them now. And I'm prepared to pay the price. And he's one of those rare artists that agreed when he said, I'll pay the price. He meant it. You know, he wouldn't blame me if it failed. But I then went to the producer, the engineer later, who was supposed to be producing the record. And I said, well, you know, what it, I, I told Sting this song should have been hit, but it wasn't because, and he said, you're right. And I said, I'm right. Well, why didn't you tell that to Sting? And he said, well, I can't tell that to Sting. I can't say, tell Sting how to write a song. I said, isn't that your job? You're a producer. You're supposed to help him. And he said, yeah, but I can't tell Sting to write a, how to write a song. And you think, well, what the point is that? He's just going to put the song down? You know, that's the moment I realized that next time we need somebody who might tell Sting. And I realized that I had to be in there as well because I wasn't intimidated. Right. You know? And that wasn't that. Was that he wanted, wanted me to tell him the truth. <clears throat> and that, you know? that was that was Hugh, right? It was Hugh Padgham. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great engineer. And, He's you know, great. in other records... I'm sure Hugh did tell people things. Yeah, yeah. Because he was not intimidated. But with Sting, he was intimidated because Sting had gained this mantle of being this sort of godly figure. Yeah, I mean, a film director is not going to benefit his film if an actor, just because they're famous, does a shitty take. You can't say, okay, that's great. That's not going to help the picture. Yeah, well, that's why, you know, film directors are sort of, you know, one of the first credit you see sometimes is the film director, you know. Yeah. Um, so the film director has a 
kind of a name there, you know, and if the film director makes a crap movie, it's going to affect on his, yeah, his credentials. So he, he's got to make sure he's right. But even in the case of a film director, sometimes they get so caught up in the film that they need an editor to come in with fresh eyes to help them cut out stuff that really doesn't need to be there. And that was part of the, the book problem for me. Some, I, when I first wrote it, it was like 200 page, you know, it was 200,000 words. And somebody said, well, you know, do you really need all that there? You know, so I'd sort of go through and I'd have to cut some things out that didn't really lend themselves to getting a message across, you know? So you find out you're honing in, you know? I mean, the Gettysburg Address is famous. Did it need to be an hour long? No. <laughs> or something, but yeah. it was perfect. You know, so sometimes, you know, we always used to say with the police, less is more. Sometimes what you leave out is important, is as important as what you put in. And I, I like to think that in a way was part of what I was trying to do with the book. So when I cut things out, it was not because I didn't think they were important. It was because they didn't necessarily, they were either a duplication or they didn't really add to the message that I was trying to do, you know. Uh, but you might do another one? You might, might write another one? Well, you know, I, I get people that, you know, one of the embarrassing things about writing a memoir is, well, you didn't write in much, you write very much about me, you know, or you leave some people out, you know. Um, so it's, you're gonna get some crap, you know, I'm sure that I'm gonna have some, some hate mail come from people who said, well, you know, you didn't mention me and uh, um, I was more important to your career than you, you say, you know, or some people, you know, there's an old saying, you know, um, a success has a million authors, a failure, you're an, you're an orphan. Right. You know, nobody wants to claim, you know, everybody wants to claim success. Nobody wants to claim a failure. I think it's important to claim the failure because I think failures are, are as interesting as and important to what you're learning as, as your successes. As I also say in the book, the biggest failure I had was the star trucking tour. Yeah. That opened me up to ideas that I never would have had if it had been a success. Yeah, if that tour had been a success, you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation about this, about this book. I mean, exactly. you know, that wouldn't have happened. But, um, and, and how is your relationship with Stuart? Do you see him? Do you talk? Are you guys all right? Well, I think the, the, the police reunion thing was sort of a drama for a lot of us. And yeah. it, it, it didn't help because I, he was told if Miles is involved, there won't be a tour. And he, he needed the tour, you know. And so I think that sort of caused strain, you know. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But I think, you know, one of the one of the points that I make in the in the book is, you know, one of the other important ones. Somebody said to me the other day, what was the most important show you ever did? And they would be imagining, you know, I would say something like, you know, Shea Stadium, you know, with the police, you know. And I said, well, no, actually, the most important show is to four people in, I think it was Syracuse or northern New York, you know. And they go, what? To four people? I said, yeah, because that show actually changed the game because one of those four people happened to be a DJ who then went off and played the record and the police walked out on stage and said well there's only four people here 
but they actually bought tickets. So let's give them a hell of a show. And they did. And that won over this DJ who, who might have arrived thinking, you know, who are these police guys? But he was so enamored with the group, he took the Roxanne single, which was the English single, and started banging it on his radio show. That's what got the attention of Jerry Moss, who then, you know, and so everything goes from there. So I would say that one show and that one DJ, who was really a nobody, he was a local DJ at a college station in Boston. That changed the game. So the idea being, never be too precious about, you know, what's going to change things. It could be a journalist to some Mickey Mouse paper in Des Moines, Iowa, but he writes that you're great. And somebody's going to see that in Chicago, who then is going to see it in New York. It, it can go from there. So that from small beginnings or from an acorn, an oak tree grows. And you and never know who's in the room, right? You never know who's in you the room. You never know who's in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for you, what's the, what's your next, your next goal for yourself or what's your next project? What do you have going on? Well, I work with Steve Vai on a guitar project because I've always liked guitar players and, and I look for kind of projects that are a little more like a brand than they are an individual. You know, people have said, would you manage again? And I say, well, you know, I'm not looking for a management act, but if I saw something tomorrow that appealed to me, maybe I would. So I don't really put out any rules of what I would or I wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that modern music business today, people don't recognize the musician like they used to. When I entered the music business, you know, when, when you saw Eric Clapton as God written on the wall, it was not Eric Clapton, the singer or the songwriter, it was Eric Clapton, the guitar player. Well, the guitar player these days is how recognized are they, you know? I mean, Keith Urban is known more as a guy on TV and, and as a singer than he is as a guitar player, but he's a brilliant guitar player. You know, Steve Vai is known as a guitar player, but he doesn't sing, you know. So I, I, I'm interested in a project where the guitar is, in, is itself the, the defining thing that makes the thing work, you know. Um, lyric writers would be the same, you know, or whatever, you know. So something that makes the thing work, that's not necessarily, you know, the singer being the front person and everything is this about the singer, you know. By the way, why couldn't Jeff Beck nail that part? That part, that was such a weird moment in the book and you seemed as mystified as, as I am asking the question. Which, which part? Oh, where Jeff Beck, he's in the studio and he keeps, and they, they sort of cobble together when he leaves, they put it together, but he didn't play it all the way through. Um, yeah, Jeff Beck, I mean, there's a guy, I remember my Stuart coming to me one day when, because Jeff Beck came to the songwriter retreat, which was right. like a huge deal for me. I mean, having the world's greatest guitar player at your songwriter retreat, you know, but he was this curious guy. I mean, he was, you know, he would be playing brilliant stuff. And one day Stuart comes to me and goes, you know, I've never met a musician that God talks to until I met Jeff Beck, but he only does so intermittently. The rest of the time, it's gibberish. And I always thought that was a great line because that was it. You'd go listen to Jeff Beck and you'd hear something absolutely brilliant. And then it would be followed by something that didn't make a lot of, could be out of tune or something, you know. And when, when he came to play with Zuccaro, that's what happened, you know. There'd be bits of brilliance and then it would degenerate into something, you know, and we did take after take thinking we would get one take. We got 12 takes. 
every single one of them had brilliant moments, but then it would go into this sort of out of tune bit. And I, we, I'm even mentioning to Jeff, well, Jeff, here's an auto tuner. He go, no, man, just the ear, mate, just the ear. You know, he would only tune by the ear. And in the end, the engineer said, hey, look, uh, we've got 12 takes. I'm sure I could make something out of this. Uh, tell Jeff, great, and goodbye, you know. So that's what we did. So Zuccaro and I, Henry Padovani was with me at the time, and we left the studio, and we were going to come back a few hours later, and the engineer was going to piece all the bits together. And we come back, and Jeff had gone home thinking he'd done a great job, which he did, you know. And uh, then the engineer plays the solo. It's utterly brilliant. It's perfect for what Zuccaro wanted. But of course, it was a combination of 12 takes or six or I'm not sure how many, but it, it was a combination. So it was the greatest guitar solo that had never actually been played. <laughs> right. Only bits of it were played. So that's how Jeff Beck's process is. In other words, he, that's typical. It wasn't, he, he wasn't having an off day. That's just how he is. Yeah, he's, he's kind of like this idiot. Well, Stuart called him an idiot savant. He was brilliant, but he would, he would just, you know, I, I kept saying, Jeff, let's record this. Let, let's put this out. He goes, nah, nah, man. Too many squirrely bits. Too many squirrely bits. <laughs> I would go, well, most people would love to have a squirrely bit like that. You know, but I keep thinking one day he might say yes. You know, I go back, Jeff, what about those songs you did? You know, because they were brilliant. You know, I had Stuart on drums, Armand Sabaleko, who did Graceland on bass. I mean, what a combination. Jeff Beck, Armand Sabaleko, and Stuart Copeland on drums. You know, those are brilliant tracks. And Jeff keeps saying, nah, nah, man, nah. They went right, you know. But I've had other artists like that who, who somehow... This, you know, Imogen Heap, who is brilliant. Love her. You know, I have three or four songs from her from the castle that were utterly brilliant. And I would call her and say, can we do something with these? And she'd go, no, no, you know, no, don't do that, you know. And you kept thinking, for Christ's sake, you know, life is only so short, you know, use it, you know. But uh, unfortunately, you know, like I say, sometimes artists don't appreciate how good they are. Uh, I mean, Keith didn't want to go to the songwriter retreat. He didn't think he was good enough. You know, Greg Wells had to be dragged kicking and screaming to the songwriter retreat. They both arrived there and flew like a dove, you know, but they didn't think they were good enough, you know, so who's to yeah. know? Creative, creative people. Sometimes those who aren't that good think they're much better than they are and then the opposite. Yeah. And I think in a way, my, my job was always to, you know, find people that I thought were brilliant. And I, like I say, my job was to open that door, but I had to own up to the fact that, you know what, I could push them through the door, you know, I could lead them through the, but the reality was, no, I need them to go through the door. And if I thought that I could pull them through the door and keep pushing them, one, it was a hell of a thing to job and it would occupy all my time, you know. Uh, and two, that really that was unrealistic. So the bands that I did the best with were the ones that you could open the door and they would just go right through. The Police being one, uh, the Go-Go's, Belinda Carlisle, you know, Jules Holland, um, 
those bands would go through and and do it. But there were others that were just super talent. I mean, Stan Ridgeway is one of my favorites of all time, you know, but he was a guy that would look at that door and, you know, agonize whether or not he should go through it or not, you know, and Pat, Rick, Pat McDonald, the same, you know, there were, there are other acts like I had like that. Dave Wakeling was one like that, you know, that you, you knew that there was brilliant elements there, but, you know, so I think that's one of the things you have to face, you know, you're, you're not, and that's sort of like the title of the book, two steps forward, one step back. Right. Is the idea being, you know, you can, as long as you can keep going forward, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to sign people who don't go through the door. You know, you may think they're going to go through the door, but you know, they don't. And some will go through the door, but still aren't going to make it, you know? So you have to face the fact you're going to make mistakes and there's going to make mistakes but that shouldn't put you off. Keep the momentum going, keep going, because as long as you keep going, like we said with the police, we can make a mistake, but by the time somebody's discovered the mistake, we've had two successes. So there was forward momentum. I enjoyed the book immensely. Thank you for signing it for me and sending it. It was, you know, I spent the last week reading it and I just, I loved it. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. It was, it was very kind of you. Well, I think it's important because, you know, I see musicians now that, and, and I hear things in Spotify and I sort of twiddle the radio and you hear people and you think, you know, that's really good. I hope that person is going to make it because that's something interesting, you know. And, you know, you realize that a lot of the same rules that I was working with back then were neglected by stars that are probably neglecting them today, you know? So some people I would think that, you know, I'd look back on a couple of years. And I, I remember this in the songwriter retreat, I would hear songs being done and I would think, wow, those are really great. And a couple of years later, I would look that person up and nothing. Nothing, you yeah. Know? And actually there was one singer that I had came at one of the first retreats and I emailed back and this, this was, this was uh, when it got resurrected by ASCAP. I, I, I emailed back just about eight or nine years ago. I emailed the person. I said, well, what's happening in your career? And well, the record company hasn't found the single yet. And you're thinking, well, why leave it to the record company? What about you? Right. You know, and you know, a lot of people sort of think that they can delegate their life to someone else. And the reality is you better be very lucky. You know, I think the police were lucky to have me. Would they have made it without me? I don't know. I doubt it. But it was, they were in the right place in the right time. Could I have made it without them? Well, no. You know, we, we needed each other in a way. And, I, you know, but in most cases, a lot of those acts, you know, needed somebody to kind of open the door for them, but they needed to go through. And I think that's a lesson that people need to learn. And I think acts today, if they think the label's going to make them happen, uh, you know what, maybe it'll be short-term success, but you've got to keep at it, you know? So, you know, like I remember one of the songwriters coming to the, and, and I was saying, well, you know, what about social media? And they were saying, you know, we spend three or four hours every day, me personally, doing social media, because my fans, if I don't keep up with them, they'll find somebody new and I'll lose them. And it was a realization that, What's been, it's always been true. You've got to keep at it. You've got to keep the profile going because people are fickle. 
you know, they'll find something else to follow, you know. So that's part of the game is to keep active. And I think that was one of the secrets of Donald Trump. You know, the minute, you know, you think that he'd do something crazy and that would finish him, there'd be something else crazy coming along and all of a sudden the attention would go there. So there was all, you couldn't escape. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, and he's still doing it, which is, you know. Couldn't escape, you know. So that's a great lesson in marketing. So Donald Trump, to me, aside from the politics of it, is a great lesson in marketing, just like watching TV. You know, you can learn a lot by just watching what commercials work and what they don't work. And, and you know, a lot of musicians, you know, the, the biggest mistake musicians make is they think it's about the music. Mm-hmm. And I think, I keep wanting to say, guys, it's not about the music. That's number two. Number one is let people know you exist. Then they get into the music. Miles, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I could just keep going. Well, if you want to do one again, whenever, um, I always like to talk. You know, I'd love to have you back on the show. I'd love to do that. Well, like I say, open invitation. I will definitely be taking him up on that invitation. Uh, I will have him back on the show. Looking forward to another chat with the great Miles Copeland. Two Steps Forward, One Step Back is the name of the book, and it is such a good book. I Look, I have read so many books by musicians, and they're all great. I mean, you know, some are better than others. But this is a book by a music executive. And frankly, his perspective is really refreshing. Uh, You don't get a narrative from the other side of the desk. You only get it usually from, uh, you know, from the stage, from the performer. And uh, this is a really, really good read. So do check it out. Jawbonepress.com is where you need to go uh, to get your copy of the book or knock on the door of your indie bookseller uh, in your neighborhood and have them order it for you. They will. They'll happily do it. I know Amazon will deliver it to you via a drone and uh, the drone on its way out will, you know, do a couple of chores for you. I get it. It's convenient. It's fast, but you know, if you can order it from Jawbone or order it from your local indie bookseller. I mean, do you really want to keep paying for Jeff Bezos to go to space? Come on. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor, or you can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or you can email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, maybe leave us a nice rating, a comment or two, tell a friend. You know the drill. BombshellRadio.com is where you need to go to find out Uh, how our radio station keeps ticking along. Uh, I think that's all the businessy stuff I have for you. And you know what? I have a surprise for you. Remember at the top of the show, I mentioned REM playing Don't Go Back to Rockville in a living room 
on IRS's The Cutting Edge? Well, I've got it, and I'm going to play it for you right now in its entirety. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show, and I'll see you next time. Enjoy R.E.M. right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Looking at your watch a third time, waiting in the station for the bus. Going to a place that's far, so far away, and if that's not enough, enough.
another year Cause when we get behind closed doors